Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.Scot. I'm very glad today to bring you a conversation about a new book, Taking Control, Sovereignty and Democracy After Brexit, by Philip Cunliffe, George Hoare, Lee Jones, Peter Ramsey, and glad in particular to be joined for a conversation about the book and its arguments by uh, Philip Cunliffe, Associate Professor in International Relations at University College London. Philip, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Delighted to be here. Now, the book, it feels like the product of a long period of kind of building up uh, a body of scholarship about interpreting modern forms of state regime and rule that characterise particularly European society in our day and age. It is, as I was saying to you before we came on, it's a compellingly put together case. I think whether you agree with it or disagree with it, you'd have to accept that. And it's the case to answer. If you're a kind of socialist, thinks of themselves in that kind of classical Marxist tradition, and if, like many of the people listening to this podcast, you consider yourself a supporter of Scottish independence, I think it throws up a number of serious challenges to traditional perspectives on those questions. We'll get on to some of those areas where we might disagree. But first of all, could you just tell us why you wanted to publish this book, you and your co-authors, and what the basic case of the book is? So we felt the reason to publish the book was because we felt the arguments in it hadn't been, well, the arguments that we had made, but um, in different kind of contexts and venues, hadn't had enough of a elaborate articulation and also that they needed to be crystallized and their implications for the future of British politics also had to be expressed. So though the book is um, kind of launches off the 2016 Brexit referendum and the politics that subsequently flowed from it, the orientation of the book is towards the future. What are the implications for British politics for the British state of its secession, withdrawal from the European Union. So to that extent, it's a crystallization of uh, the arguments, uh, political discussions, campaigning that myself and my co-authors were involved with um, in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum between um, you know, 2000, roughly between 2016 and 2019, up until roughly the imposition of the um COVID lockdowns in early 2020. So it's the distillation not only of um not only of academic work um that we had kind of separately been pursuing um ourselves with various you know various kinds of um professional careers, but also that incredibly intense and educative political experience of those few years between 2016 and 2020. And the book promotes an argument you might call sovereigntist, demanding the reconstitution of nation states, specifically in Europe. Now, many people will simply answer, we already live in a nation state, in a Europe and in a world of nation states. How can the nation state possibly have relevance to the many challenges that human civilization currently faces? So there would be two, or I think there'd be, let's say, a number of prongs to to my response. So legally, you could say that we have nation states, but um, to a great degree, we would say those nation states are hollowed out. And this is a core part of the argument. So if nation states are not only understood as um, legal entities, you know, as kind of um, states that can, you know, have a little flag at their desk in the UN General Assembly or that are have the legal capacity to enter into treaties and whatnot, but are understood as actual political structures connecting states to their electors, connecting states to their citizens, then in that case, we say that nation states, um, you know, they're not, they don't meaningfully exist in many parts of the world. Um, and perhaps um, the least so in modern day Europe, in the European Union. And that's part of the transition to 
um, member statehood. And so a good deal or a core part of the argument in the book is that what we've seen over the last 30 years as part of the process of neoliberal globalization is the transition from is the transition from independent nation statehood to member statehood. And that's to say that the member state is not only a member, a participant of various um, intergovernmental and supranational organizations, but that as part of embedding themselves in these various globalist networks, they detach themselves from their own societies, from their own electors, from their own citizens. So they peel off from their domestic constituents as they integrate more into free trading regimes, into supranational agreements, into international agreements. And that this is a core part of the way in which um, rule, political politics happens um, throughout the world, but most intensively um, and most decisively in the member states of the European Union. So in a, if that so that's the first part of the answer with respect to the idea and you know that the nation state isn't up to the challenge confronting humanity as a species it seems to me i would flip it around and i'd say it's the member state so these hollowed out kind of shells um which we have kind of all over the world but especially in the western world and especially in the european union it is these member states that have such little popular legitimacy um, that have no popular input into into political decision making that have such little um accountability to their own publics um that is it's this member state in fact that's incapable of rising to meet the challenges of the 21st century and so what we propose is that if we reconstitute nation states if we engage in a process of nation building that if we constitute sovereign nation states rather than these dependent politically dependent internationally integrated member states that we would be in a better position to meet the challenges you know that i mean anyone you know could enumerate that confront us collectively so if we're to have um you know, if we're able to meet a challenge with, with popular legitimacy, with popular input, and thus with greater prospect for success, I think, by the by consequence of um of uh, having the benefit of that popular legitimacy, then we need we need nation states to do that. I mean, much of the book, um, to maybe put this into some more familiar territory for people listening who aren't acquainted with the scholarship that lies behind the book, um, much of the book is a history that will be very familiar to many people and many readers on the left. I mean, it it casts my mind back to reading David Harvey's uh, Brief History of Neoliberalism, which must have been published about 20 years ago now and was probably one of the earlier political books I ever read. Um, and that book, I think, kind of set the tone for a lot of left-wing discussion of the last 30 or 40 years of the development of capitalism in that it understood neoliberalism as uh, in the domestic sphere, essentially about privatization and commercialization of formerly public parts of the economy and understood globalization as you know, the spread of multinational corporations, international trade links, and so on. Your book deals much more, and the theories it's drawing from and the scholarship it's drawing from draws much more, portrays those last 30 or four years as much more about the transformation of state power and the nature of, of state power. And that, that, I think, is the enormous gap that this scholarship fills and why it's so immensely um valuable because if you you know if you see yourself as i don't know politically radical or political dissident in any way that knowledge of the political regime that you face is essential for taking any kind of political action and it feels reading the book it feels like the missing link so for no other reason than that i mean i would recommend people read the book because it fills that enormous gap that and and it makes you really think the left was very often missing uh, the wood for the trees in its analysis of what, what we call neoliberalism in the last 30 or 40 um, years. So um, that's very enlightening. And the other thing that's very enlightening about the book and what I want to ask you about is um, the history it provides of the Brexit interregnum, which was, of course, this classic moment 
where neoliberalism clearly started to kind of crumble and that exposed in a way i mean did that expose to you i don't want to repeat cliches about uh owls of minerva flying and thereby exposing their wingspans and so on um but was it only once 2016 occurred that we really got a clear glimpse of just how important this member state form was for contemporary european capitalism yeah so um, with respect to the very last thing you said, um, that's definitely true. Uh, so let me, I mean, let me say, so, you know, kind of when the vote, when the referendum was announced in 2015, um, I was certain it was going to be that the Brexit um, referendum was going to be the central question of British politics for a generation. So I didn't have any doubt in my mind about that. But nonetheless, what I didn't anticipate you know, I thought that the governing, you know, the kind of uh, the governing class, the political caste, the ruling class kind of to use, um, you know, to use perhaps a more old fashioned terminology that perhaps doesn't quite clearly, um, that doesn't quite clearly perhaps grasp the strange dynamics of British elite politics at the moment. But, you know, to basically the middle classes, the professional middle classes, um, the old capitalist class uh, governing kind of elites, both in the civil service and in the wider political sphere. It seemed to me, you know, that they would they would be recalcitrant in the if Brexit, you know, if Brexit won, but that they would be able to adapt themselves to this new reality because liberal democracy had served them very well. You know, it seemed to me over the last preceding decades and so that they would be able to adapt themselves to the outcome of this plebiscite, even if it went against them, and that they would be able to live with it, they would be able to um, create new political structures to rule, um, to extract the consent and legitimacy needed for their rule, and that they would be able to defend their living standards. So though I, I was confident Brexit would be central to British politics, irrespective of the outcome of the referendum, I didn't anticipate that the, the fury of the response to an unexpected outcome. Um, and that was beyond, you know, far beyond my expectation, its viciousness, its intensity, its bitterness. And so that, like you say, was the Isle of Minerva moment in the sense that it um, indicated just how much even liberal democracy had been degraded over the preceding few decades. So that even, you know, even a plebiscite over membership of this of the European Union how couldn't be digested by the British political system, you know, which has this reputation as being so adaptable, you know, so kind of um, venerable and so easy to adjust to and incorporate all sorts of challenges in a way that, you know, neighboring states on the continent have struggled to. And so it came, you know, as a tremendous shock to see that liberal democracy was too much for the British elite to handle. A plebiscite was too much for the British elite to handle. So that was certainly an owl, owl of Minerva moment for me. Um, or at least, you know, kind of this, um, I mean, another way I likened it perhaps was something like it was like a flare kind of shot up into a night sky, which suddenly reveals the landscape, you know, illuminates the landscape in these tremendously kind of bright and vivid images that stick, which you can never forget once you see them. And so it did help me appreciate not to be, a, you know, kind of, um, I suppose, the something which is common on the left is a somewhat sneery and derogatory or dismissive attitude to um, to liberal democracy in particular. And perhaps I, you know, perhaps I'd like to think I didn't, but perhaps I succumbed to it too occasionally in the past. And so I underestimated how the old, you know, very basic structures of mass politics, such as the political equality of the vote, the idea that every person's vote counts, um, that was especially meaningful to um, so many people in Britain, um, to the masses, to um, the working class who, you know, voted for Brexit in overwhelming numbers, um, compared to, you know, kind of other votes pre prior to that. And so, all of that kind of underscored to me the significance of um, even basic structures of political democracy and their significance for mass and working class politics in the 21st century. And then just on the prior part of your question, if I may, um, the day, I think, I mean, that was another, this was another element of um, illumination, I suppose, for me, like you say, neoliberalism was um, understood in terms of 
like you say, rebalance, rebalancing the relationship between market and state or stripping back public capacity and whatnot. And if it, if sovereignty came into that picture, questions of state sovereignty, it was usually in relation to the third world of the IMF or the World Bank kind of swooping in and imposing financial diktats on um, weak developing countries. It was never really understood in relation to to the developed world. And I think the reason for that, so while the while the left was wise to um, or sensitive to at least the economic aspects of neoliberalism, they were less sensitive to its political aspects. And I think perhaps part of the reason for that was because neoliberalism itself borrowed so much of its authority and credibility and legitimacy from from the left in many ways. You know, if you think about the, I mean, the grand, I mean, I suppose the grandest being internationalism. So alongside the development of neoliberalism, global, you know, uh, globalization, liberal globalization and so on, so many of the tropes that had hitherto been associated with the left, notably internationalism or, say, ideas of open borders, um, those had been entirely assimilated to the politics of neoliberalism. And so the left was unable to see it as part of the ruling apparatus, in effect. And this is what made it so difficult for the left well, part of what made it so difficult for the left to pivot um, or to even understand the regime that they confronted because, you know, it was something in which uh, had drawn on their own arguments in order to to build its legitimacy. So in particular, I mean, this came across with, say, the repudiation of the nation, um, something which was familiar, you know, to the left over the last part of the 20th century was... Um, something which neoliberalism, global neoliberalism, um, you know, was well versed in. Uh, the suspicion and hostility to state sovereignty as concentrated, concentrated state power. Again, you know, this was something which neoliberalism needed in order to legitimate itself over the last 30 years. And, and the left found itself unable to mount a meaningful response because they'd been, you know, so compromised in a, in uh, with respect to the politics of neoliberalism. So yes, there were two kind of important moments like in to as part of this process in terms of understanding better the politics of neoliberalism, its connection to the European Union, and also understanding that even the degraded remnants of liberal democracy are tremendously important to mass politics and to working class representation and voice. Just while you're saying that, I thought of I thought of two books that kind of exemplify this. One, supposedly the theoretical tome of our generation, or perhaps Gen X's kind of generation, which was um, uh, Hart and Negri's Empire, somewhat forgotten today, but was very influential uh, around the turn of the century in the anti-globalization movement, and which uh, weirdly kind of almost endorsed. <clears throat> um, member statehood as a kind of as the path forward and the path away from um, the kind of evils of the older form of capitalism and creating a new subjectivity and a nationless mass a multitude or something who would overthrow this seamless global empire or whatever and then a kind of a pulpier version of that is George Monbiot's captive state where there's no discussion of state regimes as such the problem is that the state, the, the what was once the social democratic state, had been captured by multinational corporations. So a kind of triumph of the economic sphere over the political, as it were, um, which I suppose is an old preoccupation, right, on, on the British left, a kind of syndicalism when it doesn't want to talk about politics, it wants to talk about workers versus bosses, and there's nothing else, really. Um, so, no, yeah, I mean, it's it, it really, the book... The book kind of it, it provides that that role you were saying of a flare, like it, it really helps to illuminate the last twenty or thirty years, not just of world developments and particularly in Europe. It also helps to, I think, illuminate the left and what its blinkers were and what the what the the blind spots in its in its view of uh, of the world were. Um, and you you were saying there. Um, you start to move on to the question of mass politics. Um, and of course, one of the consequences of member statehood has been to degrade and undermine the basis for mass politics. You make a really interesting argument in the book 
where, and this is something, and you you talk about the work of Anton Jaeger, who's written very extensively about um, the decline of associational life in Western societies. And if you're on the radical left, this is the kind of, um, it's the thing that kind of haunts your, your dreams a bit or keeps you awake at night, is this problem that no one can really explain uh, that the once muscular civil society um, that countries like Britain had in the middle of the 20th century with powerful trade unions, mass membership political parties, cooperative societies, working men's clubs, religious organisations, churches, mass circulation newspapers, all of this associational life has been in decline for decades, down to now when it's it's really enfeebled. And this has grossly undermined the capacity of particularly the working class to assert its own independent political demands um, in society. But you make a really interesting argument, which is you say some on the left see the task of reversing this as trying to rebuild that associational life from the grassroots up. Whereas what you're seeking to do is assert a political challenge to the conditions which have given rise to the emaciation of associational life. Could you talk about that for a bit? Why, why is that the angle that you think this, this problem, which undermines any democratic or radical political challenge, why is this kind of trying to break the political logjam the, uh, the way to approach this problem? Yeah, so the... So I suppose the the short answer is, you know, it's not uh, the question of associational and civic life, like you say, is not something which um, it doesn't. It's something, I suppose, which could be tackled, you know, in any number of ways. But what we propose in the book is that there is a political solution to it. I think the, you know, it's easy, I think, to... Um, for these kinds of arguments about the decline of associational life to become self-fulfilling in the sense that they're so, um, you know, the statistics are so staggering, the data is so overwhelming that it can very easily, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, it should be ignored, but it can also very easily become a council of despair and also not realizing, you know, it gives you kind of no place to begin and it becomes kind of your pope left with this chicken and egg problem where we can't have any kind of meaningful um radical politics or any kind of meaningful challenge to the status quo until we have a revival of mass social life of civil society but then you know we don't have any civil society and therefore we can't have any actual challenge to the status quo and so it's very easy to kind of get trapped in that logical vicious circle and so what happened with brexit was that you had uh, it's not you know not just a kind of a logical or theoretical challenge but a meaningful mass challenge to the existing status quo, and this was very well captured, we thought, in Dominic Cummings' um, slogan, Take Back Control. So that was um, such an important, that slogan captured so much of the sentiment behind Brexit, the idea that people wanted greater control over their lives, and that they could do that, they could take that control um, through through a political act, through voting in a referendum, which I think many people intuited was a more meaningful political choice than anything that had been offered to them in the previous 30 years. And, you know, that's borne out indeed by the fact that um, about 2.8 million people participated in the referendum who hadn't participated in previous general elections or indeed in the elections that came subsequently. So you had this tremendous kind of infusion of democratic energy into the Brexit process, into the vote over Brexit. And so there was you know, a political opportunity to at least begin the process of renewing mass politics. Not, And it's not accidental that it took the form of a plebiscite um, rather than kind of a process which would happen through, you know, kind of uh, enduring organisations of, of representation, of political representation and so on. But you've got to start somewhere. And Brexit offered us the opportunity to start that process. So there was, there is, or at least in Britain, you know, there is the possibility of that process of of beginning that process of uh, restoring mass politics, or to put it in the terms um, that we use in the book and that we borrowed from the late Irish um, political scientist Peter Mayer, of closing the void. 
So he casts the kind of the decline of mass politics in terms of a void between rulers and ruled, in which the state has lost its mooring in civil society, and civil society has lost its um, its bridgeheads in the state. And so the two drift apart, the governed and the governors drift apart, the rulers and the ruled drift apart, and you have a void that emerges between the two, and this characterizes member states um, as well as, you know, um, as well as many states around the world, but in particular member states of the European Union. And so we have an opportunity with Brexit to seek to close it. And to do that, we, our proposal to do that is to, as we put it, to nation build or to reconstitute the nation as a new political entity, as a new forum for collective mass politics. So it's not the, it's not, it's not the solution to all the problems of association life, but if it has a political solution, then we have a glorious opportunity to do that in the in the context of post-Brexit British politics. Uh, and as you said earlier, the response to that Brexit vote, um, to that mobilisation uh, of voters for the the the, the Brexit vote was uh, furious. Um, you have some really, in- I mean, you have some really useful. Like, there's a there's a there's a graph in the book. Uh, detailing all of many of the kind of headline claims that were made about what would happen to Britain after it voted to leave the European Union uh, and what actually happened. Um, it's, uh, it's very enjoyable, but basically all of the predictions that were made uh, have not only not come true, many of them, the opposite outcome has uh, materialised or a very different outcome uh, in any case. Um, you said that you were yourself kind of not prepared for the ferocity of the of the backlash um is the backlash does it almost tell us more than the formal arrangements which existed before brexit and also by the way you make a really good point in the book and it's so telling i think of the extent to which media and political system is part of a conjoined establishment who um accept member statehood as the basis for rule that this really simple point I've never heard made outside of the book, which is the EU has faced votes, popular plebiscites, which have defeated it before in the attempts to implement various treaties. Um, It has faced repudiation from European uh, publics, but it has always overwhelmed them in the end, usually by forcing repeated votes that eventually arrive at what the uh, uh, what elites wanted uh, in the first place. Brexit is the first and only time where uh, the the elite, the kind of the member state elite, has been defeated in one of these one of these contests, which seems like a pretty big deal, and yet you've never, I never, never even heard it discussed. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I just wanted to pick that point out. But what does the what does that backlash demonstrate about the capacity of this elite to defend itself, its determination, you know, how embedded these forms of rule now are. Yeah, they were. So, like I say, I mean, my surprise was because I accepted the argument, which I or accepted much of the argument that was common on the left about the, you know, the, the congeniality of liberal democracy to capitalist rule. And but misunderstanding what you know, misunderstanding the way in which liberal democracy itself had changed, so that by the time we got to 2016, we weren't even talking about you know a mass politics or an era in which the capitalists enjoyed consent in the way that kind of Gramscians might have um, formulated it, where there was just kind of um, you could presume a permissive consensus or a mass kind of spontaneous loyalty and following to the institutions of the British state and the institutions of British capitalism. That was gone. And I, I think, I mean, speaking for myself, at least, I underestimated just how much it had been corroded until you saw the ferocity of the backlash. Um, And it was particularly striking that they degraded, you know, so in the the aftermath of the Brexit vote, that so much effort was spent degrading the, morally degrading the Leave voting electorate. So calling into question their capacity to make decisions on complex matters of public importance like the vote you know so it was suggested you know there was they were kind of conned manipulated by facebook russian bots um you know dark money 
um, Nigel Farage's kind of charisma, Boris Johnson's lies that these, you know, and so in so doing, basically what they, you know, what the backlash did against Brexit was to undermine the very basis of the idea of, uh, you know, kind of democratic consent in, in Britain. So it indicated, I think, to me, like, well, I mean, I suppose, you know, to to underline the point was just how um, how far the ruling elites had shifted away from mass democracy as a tool of legitimation. Um, and so that was apparent. And just to, you know, the point that you made about the the way in which previous revolts had been choked off, I mean, you had several. So you had the Dutch and French votes referenda on EU further EU integration that the EU lost in 2005. You had the vote, um, the Irish referendum in 2008 on the Lisbon Treaty. And the Lisbon Treaty was itself kind of uh, a way in which the EU devised a mechanism to spur on further integration to avoid, to get around the referenda and the popular kind of veto that had been expressed in 2005. In 2008, the Irish voted, but they were forced to vote again, and they voted positively the subsequent time. And in 2015, you had the Ochi referendum in Greece, led by Syriza. But then, even though the population, the Greeks, voted against accepting the EU bailout package, the party capitulated anyway. And so... It's important, I suppose, to underscore that it didn't, it seemed, you know, at times it didn't seem, it seemed very close to us having a second referendum, which I think would have been a catastrophe, not only for British politics, but I think for democratic politics around the world. And so there was a vote, if memory serves, I think in April 2019 in Parliament, where an amendment was tabled to enact a second referendum, and it came 12 votes within 12 votes of um, passing. So a simple majority in parliament would have laid the basis for another referendum called, you know, undermined effectively the first. So it was intensely bitter and intensely closely fought. But I suppose what it did demonstrate is that despite the fury with which the what that was unleashed on the voters and on the masses in that period, they had, they could not enact the vote without reference to the authority of parliament and the sovereignty of parliament. And so the recourse to parliamentary sovereignty, the degraded remnants of nation statehood that were embedded in the British member state, they still needed them to that extent that they could not get around it. And so there was no, you know, though the people's vote, the people who were organising for the second referendum, organising to overturn the Brexit referendum, tremendously well-organised, tremendously well-funded. They could muster hundreds of thousands for their marches in London, but they couldn't muster enough votes in Parliament because parliamentarians knew their constituencies, the way in which the British, the vote for Brexit was distributed across electoral constituencies throughout the country, meant that to un to overturn the outcome of the Brexit referendum would have meant losing their constituencies, essentially, they would have lost their votes. And so for that reason, they the fact that um, Brexit placed authority within Parliament's hands. They couldn't do anything without, they couldn't make any headway without strengthening effectively um, the authority of Parliament. And so this, I think, was, you know, this is what made, what made, you know, what made it possible for Britain uh, to eventually withdraw after nearly four years of um, campaigning and tug, tussle back and forth to withdraw in early 2020. In spite of all the odds and all the efforts of the British establishment, um, Brexit finally did go through. But the conditions of member statehood were not lifted. Why? And this kind of lead me, leads me on to my um, my first kind of potential criticism of the of the kind of this sovereigntist case. But if you could just answer how. Um, you know, why this didn't lead to the rejuvenation of a nation state democracy. Yeah, so it was certainly Brexit was a necessary but insufficient condition for the um, 
revival of mass politics, um, you know, and there's no guarantee, obviously, that mass politics could be revived as a result of Brexit, but certainly it can't be revived without Brexit. I think that is proved over the course of the last few years. And the evidence, you know, what what happened, I think, in the course of the COVID lockdowns evidenced the incapacity of the British state to rule um, through, you know, when it's cut from the mesh of uh, of the European Union. So, and that was very, I think, evident, you know, in the COVID lockdown where Britain followed the pattern which had, was set by most other European Union states and essentially empowered uh, health bureaucracy um, the SAGE group, this kind of technical advisory, scientific advisory group to the executive um, became, uh, you know, kind of effectively the de facto authority ruling by decree. Parliament dissolved itself in the course of the Brexit, sorry, in the course of the pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns. And that's very important to underscore, I think, because, you know, Parliament didn't dissolve itself in earlier periods of intense kind of uh, national tribulations or intense crisis or emergency periods in the past. I mean, you know, it's worth recalling that Parliament sat throughout the Second World War. So when the Nazis were bombing London, Parliament thought that it was nonetheless important that it continue formally, you know, to convene itself as a as a body. Um, but they dissolved itself in the course of the lockdown. So in circumstances which, you know, I think it's fair to say were far less threatening than world war and bombing of the capital city. And that speaks to the fact that these, you know, that the institutions of member statehood were used to functioning without popular input. They were used to functioning without um, popular accountability to the extent that parliament itself was effectively, you know, uh, a body that was so vestigial to the public process that you could, it could dissolve itself um, in the pandemic and allow the executive to rule by decree. Um, I mean, you could say, you know, in a period of emergency, it's even more important that there is legislative scrutiny and accountability over the actions of the executive. But clearly for the, you know, parliamentarians did not feel the same way. And so the fact the nation was put under house arrest and that indicates the continuation of member statehood, I think, that you have this um, inability of the state to draw on popular support, the inability of the state to legitimate itself through um, popular accountability or to draw on the support of the masses that was borne out through um, through the lockdown. So that indicates that the member statehood is still ingrained in the functioning of the British state, which is to say the relationship between the state and the people is still essentially functions in a very similar way. Now, they don't have recourse to Brussels anymore. Um, but I think, you know, the way in which kind of British diplomacy with Europe has gone in the last few years and, you know, since uh, the lockdown was wound down and the COVID pandemic subsided indicates that they would desperately like to align them, continue to align themselves with the European Union as much as possible in order to avoid the what would be required for Britain to really, you know, realize the benefits of secession and to diverge from the model, the political economic model that still prevails throughout the European Union. So here's my um, sort of first querying of the, the case, the kind of positive case you make for the political strategy that we should adopt, which is to reconstitute nation states uh, in Europe as the basis of rebuilding a democratic mass politics. I mean, um, you could say that liberal democracy, um, of, it's much younger than most people perhaps think it is. It's not something that stretches back to the dawn of the capitalist system. It's something that emerged generations into the industrial revolution and had to be fought for. Um, and I mean fought for sometimes, I mean with violence, with revolution, um, with, you know, with mass politics. The, the, the mass franchise emerges arguably after mass politics does. But, you know, if, if you were to take the British case even, where the vote has been in play much longer than many other countries around the world, um, it took a long time for Britain to emerge from, for a British nation to emerge from the British Empire in the kind of David Edgerton thesis, even if you were to take the longest extent of that, because of course for Edgerton, we're living in the character, you know, the characteristic British nation state from the kind of Second World War, end of the Second World War onwards, even if you were to take that from 
the extension of the Mass franchise in 1918. You're looking at, um, uh, and you were to you were to follow that period up to say 1980, with the onset of the neoliberal assault leading into the growth of member statehood and so on. You're really looking at a kind of lifetime, you know, a single generation lifetime of the democratic, the mass democratic experience. Why? Do, what reason is there for us to assume? You know, the argument almost takes for granted that uh, member statehood is an aberration. What if it's not? What if capitalism and liberal democracy are simply incompatible over the longer term? And that's an argument bolstered, I suppose, by a look around the world system, where democracy in much of the world, you know, of the liberal democratic type, was never achieved. Um, I mean, it was never achieved in China. Um, it was very fitfully achieved, at, if at all, in Russia. And we could go around the globe, where the problem isn't necessarily, you know, member statehood of the form represented by organisations like NATO or the European Union, um, but other forms of capitalist rule that also don't allow for serious mass politics and, and, and democracy. I mean, can it be that capitalism simply it's simply not vigorous enough anymore. Having been around for hundreds of years, having lost apparently its capacity to generate much economic growth, simply not a dynamic enough system to allow for the free play of class interests in that way. Yeah, it's a difficult question. And I suppose its ultimate answer can only lie, you know, its ultimate answer is ultimately a political one rather than a, a theoretical one. It's possible, I suppose, you know, liberal democracy is not the perfection, it's not the perfection of uh, of capitalism, but an unstable amalgam. And it's only, it's not the perfection of bourgeois politics from the 19th century, but uh, the un, kind of the unwieldy and contradictory result of incursions of uh, mass politics um, and the kind of un, the uh, attempt to accommodate the challenge posed by mass politics and by socialism over the last um, hundred years or so, so I mean I'd agree with that that it's not it's something which isn't can't be taken for granted in the context of industrial capitalism. But I suppose I would so I would offer a few responses. The first would be I think that the the phenomenon of member statehood, which is to say of integration, um, the integration of states into intergovernmental, supranational, transnational ways of rule. That seems to me to be a developed form across the world to a greater or lesser extent. So, for instance, I mean, if you think of, say, post-colonial states in Africa, it's the common kind of point made about them that they're essentially, you know, kind of suspended above African societies, entirely dependent on NGOs, on military, political, diplomatic, financial and economic support from from abroad in order simply to survive and function as you know political structures so it's not the the idea of member statehood is something which i think you know applies in differing ways and to differing levels and in differing kind of um contexts i think it's something which you can see in different forms across the world it's not something which is unique to the european union the european union i think offers its most um refined and sophisticated form where it's crystallized most clearly in the institutions of the old you know that arose in the among the ruins of the old nation states of Europe so in that context it seems to me that it's true that democracy liberal democracy might be something which is um you know might never be able you know might never be able to revive itself um and that doesn't necessarily mean that it gives us no options. It seems to me like mass democracy, it seems to me, might take a form which could be superior to the liberal democracy that we've had, you know, in the 20th century itself, and which was always so compromised, you know, compromised in so many ways, both in terms of its liberalism and in terms of its democracy. So, you know, if... Um, if capitalism can exist without democracy, and that does seem to me to be borne out, like you say, by the experience of um, industrialization throughout the, throughout so much of the world in in the last thirty years, through that the period of globalization, it doesn't seem to me to mean that we need to look back to restore liberal democracy, um, but rather that if we are to have 
the possibility for you know challenging for challenge well even simply for reforming capitalism for for having any kind of meaningful politics that defends the gains of modernity i suppose and of um the inheritance of bourgeois civilization then we need mass politics to be able to do that my uh second question comes from a kind of similar direction um which is uh, again i suppose the, the sort of criticism that a, a socialist and the, the marxist vein might make of the the sovereignist case is reconstituting the nation um, which, of course, is a phrase that you've um, recruited from the Communist Manifesto. Um, Marx says, before the working class can take on this international revolution, it needs to first constitute itself the nation, um, which is a very uh, interesting uh, uh, quote that could be much debated, I'm sure. But you, you point out that constituting the nation, often through an alliance of social classes, presenting their programme as that of the nation as the whole is something which has happened repeatedly through the history of capitalism and has often led, I mean, in the case, in the classic case, I suppose, of the, of the post-war decades, which you're very careful to say you're not seeking to return to, um, that, that was a situation where there was a certain coming together of uh, social classes, a class compromise is sometimes referred to, around a programme of national renewal and development, which for a time at least, stabilised social conflict, led, you know, was bolstered by high levels of economic growth and so on, before ultimately breaking down under its own contradictions. I suppose I have two questions about this, if, the, if that's what we are seeking now, right, is to reconstitute the nation through a similar process of class compromise that reconstitutes that that national block and that national project is are we assuming that the leading class actor in that new reconstituted nation isn't the working class and secondly are we assuming that it will eventually collapse under its own contradictions yeah so um to answer some of the different elements of of the of the question so um yeah the quote from the manifesto from the communist manifesto when marx says the working class must constitute itself the nation so the argument of the book and not just the argument of the book but the whole kind of politics that we've been talking about um in this pod is lake and is in the aftermath of the failure of the working class to constitute itself the nation. I mean, that's our kind of our starting premise, that so much of politics today, of society today, um, at the global level, has to be understood in the as a consequence and the aftermath of the defeat of the attempt of the working class to make itself the nation. And it seems to me that the precise way in which Marx formulates, Marx and Engels formulate the phrase in the manifesto is indicates uh, that they have an understand what they understand by the nation is the idea of the nation is a political nation. So that the working class must constitute itself a nation is to say the working class must supplant the existing nation, which is by which is meant not kind of um and that seems to me clear from the way in which it's phrased and also the broader kind of milieu and context within which the phrase was was coined, is the nation not understood as a kind of distinct ethnic or linguistic group or cultural group, but rather as the people who participate in managing their common life together. The people whose uh, choices, whose capacity to decide um, and to shape the outcome of society is meaningful. So those who, which in the context of the 1840s obviously meant those who, um, the few who had the franchise in the 1840s in places like Britain and France were the propertied. So to constitute themselves the nation would be to say that the working class must make themselves um, the ruling class, the people whose decisions count and the people whose cho collective choices um, shape the outcomes for society. So that's the sense of the nation that we um, that we want to take, uh, the political sense of the nation. And so in this context of well, the period that we're in at the moment, and what it means is that we're not proposing a class, that we're not proposing a class compromise on the model of the social democracy that emerged in European states in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, 
because I think the the real kind of lesson, particularly of of the Brexit era, is that the nation has been abandoned by ruling elites. And indeed, I think that to some degree explains the fact that they're ruling elites rather than a ruling class, that they no longer even seek to establish themselves, um, to constitute themselves in the context of a national body. So the fact that they've retreated from the nation, they've abandoned it in preference for, you know, kind of secret council of ministers meetings in Brussels or going to Davos or, you know, whatever it might be, all those various fora in which they kind of have collectively sought to kind of carve out uh, the fate of uh, the global economy and global society is an indication that they've abandoned the nation. So while of necessity, so a new, if we were to have a new political nation in, in European politics today, it would of necessity be, you know, something which would be a, a class alliance. It would be a construct of different groups' interests, of different class interests put together. It doesn't follow that it would have to be a compromise with ruling elites, or that indeed that it would need to build to build their kind of interests in. If the nation, I think, I mean, it's fair to say the nation was used to contain and suppress democratic mass politics. To It was a response to the challenges posed by the development of mass society and industrialization. And this was, um, you know, the Disraeli, the Tory prime minister Disraeli's idea of one nation in the late 19th century, one nation to build a single nation out of the two nations of capital and labor in industrial Britain. And so that was it was used to contain the aspirations of the masses, to limit the aspirations of the working class um, and to kind of beat them back. But that strategy was abandoned. You know, it's no longer used. And this has been borne out in throughout the Brexit process, precisely because they sought to avoid the nation state as a mechanism to perpetuate their rule. And worse than that, they despise anything to do with the nation. I mean, that was, you know, amply demonstrated throughout the Brexit process. It fills them with revulsion and disgust. The idea of, um, you know, kind of being in any way, having any kind of sense of political equality with uh, people in small towns or in Rust Belt constituencies or the Red Wall kind of constituencies, you know, they feel much more at home in, you know, international conferences, I suppose, for for leading members of the elite or for hipster quarters of cosmopolitan cities throughout Europe, for the lesser kind of members of the group. So in that context, it seems to me the nation is something which can be adopted. And it does not necessarily, you know, it doesn't seem to me that it follows that it requires kind of lashing together some kind of grand compromise as part of the politics of the 21st century. I mean, obviously, it could develop into that, depending on how its politics play out on the kinds of decisions and choices um, that uh, we might make or that anyone listening to the show might make, but it doesn't seem to me to necessarily um, to follow from it. So the, po the political nation that we aspire to is certainly a nation of those who have been left behind, um, a political nation of those who's, who have not been represented, a political nation for the working masses, for the masses themselves. Um, a new kind of uh, a new kind of mass politics, a new kind of mass democracy. Um, I'm sort of, I mean, so obviously, as as you've said, the pri you know previous forms of the nation state, they represented the interests of their class composition. So, for however much people, and you don't do this in the book, to be fair, you're not just saying, well, the post-war decades were great, so let's go back to that. Is the kind of spirit of forty-five thing? You point out that it was contradictory. It was also, of course, and it's so. I mean, it was still exploitative of working class people. It was still a system by which um, a small elite controlled and exploited and and so on the, the the rest of the population and embarked on wars and all the rest of it. And of course, was locked in a potentially deadly cold war with the USSR and so forth. Um, but the 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 reason it took that political form, of course, is because of the class forces who dominated the class compromise. If the new class compromise doesn't involve those elites, if it's made up of elements of the working class and perhaps, you know, parts of, I don't know, lower middle classes or something like that, presumably the only political form that could take is one which represented the interests of that working and lower middle class majority, or in other words, socialism. Yeah. So we don't... Um... The political nation that we have in mind is certainly a nation of the working class and its allies or those those social groups that would accept its leadership. 
Um, and indeed, you know, like it's also important to stress, it would definitely be a working class that would reflect the, you know, state of British society today, not the British society of the 1970s when we entered the precursor of the European Union, or indeed the British society of 1945. Um, so a multiracial and a multi-ethnic nation, a political nation, not a, not, um, you know, any other kind of nation, so to speak. And then would that... And so I wouldn't, like I say, I'm not I'm not sure I'd frame that nation in terms of compromise. Um, but the reason we don't talk in terms of socialism, I suppose it depends, you know, we don't, it's not an art, we don't make an argument for socialism in the book, either in one country or in, you know, any other form. So it's not an argument for socialism. It's an argument for mass politics. And so I suppose it's worth asking what, you know, what is meant by, what do we mean by, I don't mean what you mean or what I mean, but I mean what one could mean by socialism in the context of contemporary politics. So if you understood socialism as, say, uh, a rebalancing between the state and the market in favour of the state, if you understood socialism in terms of um, the return of uh, of big states, of spending on redistribution and greater taxes, of a willingness to invest in public services, on a willingness to kind of expand the state bureaucracy in order to um, respond to certain kinds of challenges of social collapse or to meet the challenges of um, uh, decarbonization and responding to climate change. And a kind of a socialism in which there will be many, you know, kind of potentially many jobs for graduates, um, for technical specialists for um, professionals for educated middle class people who would have kind of the promise of secure employment um, in public in the public in a new kind of an invigorated public sector if it would be a socialism which would you know kind of lead to more higher wages um, for greater numbers of people in society you know their chances for that kind of socialism seem to me to be reasonably good in the wake of the Biden administration's kind of attempt to launch a Green New Deal, the Inflation Reduction Act and the subsidies it's pouring into American reindustrialization and how that's kind of spurring attempts to compete among other industrialized countries. You know, if, if that's what is meant by socialism, the chances for that seem to me like reasonable over a kind of time frame of a couple of decades. If by socialism one meant the power, the rule of the working class, um, we're under its own kind of pol political forms, um, its own political institutions replacing existing political institutions, then that seems to me to be a very distant prospect. And that would be the classical, that would be what I would understand by socialism and the classical kind of Marxist understanding of socialism as the political rule of the working class. And that seems to me a distant prospect at the moment for the very simple fact there is no kind of organized working class um, to speak of. It has no real kind of political existence. It's, you know, kind of, it has a kind of a social existence, perhaps, um, but it's under tremendous pressure, um, deracinated not only in political terms, but also, you know, in social terms. And so it doesn't seem to me to talk in terms of, if to talk in terms of socialism, you, I think one how we, you know, it means being tremendously careful about one, what one is talking about. So, there is no prospect for socialism in the near future in terms of the rule of the working class or even, you know, kind of greater working class influence, at least without the recurrence of mass politics. And so what we suggest is that the only way, but the only way to have um, to have mass politics is also to have a clear expression of state sovereignty. So, and this is the sovereigntist position, if you want to put it in like that. I mean, I would perhaps put it in scare quotes, um, but the sovereigntist position would be to um, say that we will not have mass politics and you can't have any kind of meaningful working class politics, it seems to me, without clear a clear locus of public power, without a clear center of decision-making power, um, without an account, without kind of a single center of author public authority that is at least formally accountable to its own constituents, to its own electors. And that seems to me to be borne out by the last 30 years. Um, the great achievement, you know, if the point of socialism is to put the working class in power, for the working class should rule, that the working class should have state power, then it seems to me one of the greatest achievements of neoliberalism was to make state power meaningless. 
um, to kind of make the state so weak and hollowed out and denuded of meaningful authority and power that the question, precisely that question, the old question of the, the social question, the old questions of socialism were made redundant. And so it seems, you know, I mean, this goes kind of this goes to your uh, point about Hart and Negri. You mentioned them earlier. You know, they it seems to me they that form of radicalism has had a clear run for the last 30 years. So um, protesting and the global level in outside of conferences of the IMF and the World Bank and avoiding questions of state power, that route has been tried for the last 30 years and it's gone absolutely nowhere. Um, so we've had the kind of the post, you know, if there is to be a kind of, uh, if there was to have to been a radical politics, which avoided the question of state power, it seems to me that time is over and that it has delivered absolutely nothing over the last 30 years that's in any way kind of meaningful. If anything, it's set us back um, tremendously. So I, you know, we can't, I think, um, you know, we the, given the terrible uh, experiences of the 20th century, there are certainly no guarantees going forward into the 21st century. But if there is to be any kind of working class politics, it requires political power. If there's to be any revival of classical socialist politics, it requires clear a clear understanding of sovereignty, because that is what makes state power meaningful. And so that is the only thing that would make socialism, at least in the classical mold, meaningful as well. I'm eager to move north into the troubled terrain of Scotland. But just before I do, because this kind of this is what I was kind of driving at earlier with the, the point about the, the decline of associational life and with it working class organized organizational independence, political independence, and so on. Isn't that a bit of a chicken and egg problem here? Which is you're saying um we need the democratic locus of the sovereign nation state to make a challenge from the working class meaningful. But presumably to bring about that locus of the reconstituted nation state, you also need a mass political challenge from the working class. Yeah. So um, I think it's more of a chicken and egg problem for the um, if the decline of association life is understood purely in terms of in sociological or civic terms of membership of mass institutions, of trade unions, of churches and so on. Um, you know, that is the chicken and egg problem, whereas. That seems to me to have been, you know, the the ground has been laid for a new kind of mass politics in the context of Britain separate seceded from the European Union. So if we're willing to seize the opportunity, because what the Brexit process was, was the working class directly involving itself in questions of state power without the mediation of the of the old trade unions. Um, and, you know, there, I mean, it's... It shouldn't bear, I mean, it, well, it probably does bear repeating, but, you know, I mean, the trade unions were also as much, politically speaking, they were also as much part of the problem as they were of the solution in the old working class politics. The conservatism of the of the leadership of the trade unions, its middle class layers, the trade union bureaucracy, always much more conservative and cautious than the shop floor. And so working the problem of trade unionism was also a perennial problem for the left. So the fact that we, you know, that they aren't, that they don't exist in the way they used to, and the fact that the working class kind of has directly um, embroiled itself, even in all the limit, you know, as problematic and as limited as the Brexit process has been, nonetheless, that was the working class kind of um, fumbling, I suppose, around the questions and in the questions of state power for the first time, you know, perhaps in a generation. And the fact that the Red Wall have made themselves um, the kind of the leave voting constituencies in the north of England and in the Midlands, they made themselves swing states whose choices determine the outcome of national elections. You know, that seems to me to indicate that there is the politics for the possibility of reviving mass politics. It's not the only way that mass politics will be revived, and it's not a revival of associational life, like you say, but it seems to me that the chicken and egg problem, that potentially has been solved for us if we're willing to pursue um, the opportunities that Brexit gives us. Heading uh, north to Scotland in that case, part of your argument about reconstituting the nation, which you say should be a European-wide, and I suspect it's a worldwide development from what you've said. But of course, you, you restrict this mostly to, to Britain, which is the subject of the book. Reconstituting that nation state, you say, doesn't it doesn't need to appeal to the demarcations 
of the old British nation state before member statehood. And to make that clear, you say uh, you support the reunification of Ireland. The Northern Irish state is obviously an impediment to the development of a coherent uh, constitutional national entity in, in Britain. But you also, just to assuage any fears of anyone listening to this, that your unionism uh, <laughs> extends to the you know that most peculiar and unnatural of um, arrangements in the neighbouring country, but you do want to preserve the Scottish, Welsh and English union. Um, why is it important to do that to reconstitute a British nation state? This has been the first part of an interview with Philip Cunliffe on the book Taking Control, Sovereignty and Democracy After Brexit. In the second part, we discuss the reunification of Ireland, the nature of the Scottish independence movement, the SNP and its crisis, and whether the Scottish Parliament should be shut down. To hear those debates, to gain access to lots of other exclusive content, and to support everything that Conta does, become a subscriber at patreon forward slash contascott.